Hello and welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 9, The Limey from 1999. I am Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And this is one of the first movies that we've done, I think, that I'd seen before. Most of what he'd done, I guess Sex Lies and Out of Sight, I'd seen before, but this is sort of familiar territory for me. So this is an unusual experience so far here in Cinemakers for me. Uh, I've seen this movie a couple times. I first saw it about around the time I saw Schizopolis. I guess around the time I met Tobin where he turned me on to Schizopolis. And then I went back and tried to fill in the gaps of all the Soderbergh I hadn't seen. And this was one that I discovered way back then. And uh, I'd seen it. I watched I visited a couple times because I really liked this movie. So uh, I was really glad to rewatch it. Yeah, this came out my no oh, junior year of college, senior year of college. This is one that sort of nobody's nobody in my circle saw in the theater, but we all passed around the DVD of like almost like a you know like a secret. Like here, you got to see this, <laughs> got to see this movie. This will blow your mind. And this may be one of the Soderberghs I've seen the most. I, I teach it often, pieces of it, or occasionally the whole thing in classes, uh, as many classes as I can as I can fit it into. But I yeah, I I, I know this movie pretty well. It's kind of, in in certain ways, like peak Soderbergh in terms of the things that he's done that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks and things he's going to go on to do. I mean, we keep talking a lot about his nonlinear editing and about how that sort of started with King of the Hill in that one scene and then jumped around and out of sight. We saw it a lot last week. But here, I mean, this whole movie, I mean, even when you know what's going on, it's sometimes hard to figure out what's the past, what's the present, what's the future, what's just thought, what's just a dream, like what's a memory. Like there's all sorts of times timelines going on here and they're all weaved together to tell this one story like a simple story basically this guy flies to LA to figure out what happened to his daughter who was killed and then maybe get revenge and like it's a simple story but the way that they weave together I don't know like six or seven probably different timelines like it's if there's a lot going on yeah I think it it helps that it's not a very complex plot Right. I mean, uh, it's very simple. Like you said, like he just he, he, his daughter is dead and he wants to go find out what happens. And I think because it's so small, he's able to do all those things with the editing. Um, you know, it feels like it's being told in order, even though you're aware it's not like you're not even I wasn't even aware this time again, having seen it a few times until the very end. It's the time in which certain events took place. But you definitely see things early on in the film that took place later later uh, in the timeline. So even though it uh, is playing tricks on you, I never felt confused or sort of like out of my depth. I always had a comfort in knowing that somewhere toward the end, this puzzle was going to form a complete picture. Yeah, it's surprisingly clear for as nonlinear as the, the storytelling style is. And, and you're totally right, Joey. It all comes down to how simple the premise is, how the plot itself, the you know 15 or, or two dozen events that happen in the movie are easy to follow. They're, they're, they're moving relatively linearly and sort of all the, the scenes around it shift back and forth. And sometimes there are these extraordinary scenes that we'll get to where you'll see a scene take place or a conversation will take place in order in a linear fashion, but they but the uh, film jumps back and forth between three or four different locations, shooting the conversation in order. Uh, it's just this, this kind of fascinating ways of getting at memory and as well as film. You know, the ideas that he is that we learned from that making of on the King of the Hill disc that he's trying to break from the shackles of narrative. And he really does this here, partly because he has such a fixed and simple story to tell. 
One thing he does here, though, that we I don't think we've seen yet, and I don't know if we're going to see again. I'm, I'm guessing probably... I don't think he's ever going to do things that like work well that he's just going to abandon, but I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but you guys are more familiar with him than I am. He shows future realities that don't happen. Like when he's when Terrence Stamp is at the party and he goes and like they show him shooting guys and killing guys and you know all those different like what he could do and then none of that happens. But when you don't know that it's not happening until it flashes back to reality. And that's something new and it's something along those same lines, right? That we've been seeing but a little bit of a twist on it to give it a little bit more excitement as opposed to if you just showed what happened, you'd just be watching a guy thinking like just staring at a guy for a while and then leaving yeah i think it's like an evolution of the non-linear style in a way where it's taken into daydream land or you know brings you deeper inside the psyche of the main character right like this is this is what he's thinking he wants to shoot this man he wants to stab this man like he's just in front of all these people but you know he can't it's just it's just not it's just not proper etiquette i suppose to just shoot someone in front of everybody like that but no like it's just not the time the timing isn't right but yeah i think that's something you see in other films as well uh but it works especially well in this and it tricks you because of he's already set up that film language where he's jumping around in time and you're inside this guy's head and you know you're not sure is he are we seeing clear memories or not? Are these things that actually happened or is he just like, you know, imagining the worst? So I felt like that was working. Yeah, you realize from very early in this film that he could cut anywhere. You know, he could go from a shot of Terrence Stamp sitting alone in his hotel room staring at the wall to a shot of Terrence Stamp 30 years ago with his then wife to to Terrence Stamp you know, five minutes later, bashing some guy's head in with the, the butt of a revolver. Like, he, you, you never know, and you never know in those things, is it, or not, you never know, but he could take you into a memory, he could take you into a flashback, he could take you into a flash forward. So when it gets to this this party scene, which is one of the scenes that I show all the time, he's at Peter Fonda's house, and he thinks that Peter Fonda is responsible for the death of his daughter, and we see him staring at him, you know, from this balcony, and then he walks in and shoots him in the, first it's in the chest, right? And then it cuts back to him on the balcony, and he's watching and, and hasn't done anything. Then he goes in again, and this time shoots him in the, you know, in the, in the head, and then comes comes back out again hasn't done it and he plays that trick three times and by the third time you think oh this is the real one he's actually going to kill him now and then when he doesn't you know when he gets stopped by Luis Guzman there's a sense for me anyway of sort of delight and wonder at what he's been able to accomplish and like and now I really know he could do he could do anything in this movie because now I can't for sure even believe what I'm seeing that looks like it's taking place in the present no absolutely you sort of have to really be on your toes here when you're watching because you don't know like you said like you don't know where he's cutting from where he's cutting to like you know why like there's a reason to it but you don't know what's coming next and it it requires not necessarily active viewing but you can't sort of check out because you'd be like well how did we get here and then all of a sudden we're back to a different place and like you really have to be paying attention to the entire i guess montage style right like that's sort of like the montage style editing i guess yeah, exactly. This is a this editing style that he's got going here turns out to be all motivated by the fact that you learn at the end of the movie that these the shots of him on a plane that we keep getting, uh, the movie begins him him walking out of an airport and and you know getting in a car and heading off on his adventure in L.A. and you keep cutting back to him sitting on a plane, just not quite randomly. Like it feels like it's for a purpose, but you never. I'm never quite sure when I'm going to go back there. 
And you realize by the end of the movie, that's him on the plane flying back to London, or at least that's what you think it is. And which means that the whole movie is sort of playing in his head over the, like he's remembering his week in LA and what he did there and how he felt about it and the closure he's come to and all the, all the characters he met along the way, which sort of is a psychological you know reason to be able to montage the whole movie to be able to to have all this you know we'll, we'll call it uh, discontinuity editing where the the cuts are not seamless the cuts stand out you really notice the editing in this movie the way i like to describe it when i'm teaching my undergraduate students is that if my mom would notice the editing then it's definitely discontinuity editing and my, my mom would notice something's <laughs> going on with the editing in this movie and i and i think that that to my mind the real power of of this movie because i think if this played i don't know what you guys feel like i think if this played in a, in a uh, just a linear fashion it would be pretty dull, don't you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's part of the power is the way that the story is told. Uh, you know, the, the you don't realize until the end of the film that the storytelling device is this wraparound of him on the airplane, but you're not sure until the end whether he's coming or going. Right. There's a real sort of like memento-esque thing going on with it that works and that if you told it straight, I don't think you would have the same impact or you would get the same value out of the story because they, they would be more familiar. Like this, for instance, isn't very much more than Death Wish, right? right? Like <laughs> if you think about it, he's Charles Bronson going after the guy who raped and murdered his daughter. Although, you know, she didn't get raped, but like she did get murdered. So it's what elevates it from just being another version of Death Wish, Death Wish 6, 7, or 8. And I love those movies, but I don't need to see another one. They don't need to remake that. And if you are going to remake it, you do it like this. You know, you, you take it to this type of level. You mask it as like a mainstream art film almost. And you play with the audience's mind because they're so familiar with this idea of, you know, a father going after justice for his daughter. So I think there's just a lot of elements that lined up well in order to play with narrative with this particular story. This is a movie that gets deeper inside a character's head than maybe anyone I've seen. It's And, and not just how he feels, although you do get a sense of how Terrence Stamp feels, but this guy can hold a close-up, you know? Like these close-ups of him on the plane or in the hotel room or in the car or wherever, just sort of looking out the window and thinking sounds kind of dull. And maybe maybe it would be to some people. I find it fascinating. And I, I it, it, it involves me so much in his thought process. It's something Soderbergh talked about somewhere along the way with regard to this movie is that he thought one thing movies could do really well is show people thinking. And then you either show them what they were, you know, either show the audience what they were thinking or just what influenced that thought or whatever. And that the cutting of movies can mirror the way our minds work, you know, the way our memories work or not, or our dreams or even just our thoughts that, you know, move by association, not through time, right? So you, you sit here and you say something that reminds me of a friend I knew 10 years ago who loved this movie and that reminds me of the director who did the like your mind goes in these sort of chains of association and that's what he wants I think his the cutting to do in this movie which gets you so deeply into Terrence Stamp's head into his character's thinking that it, it sort of gets me even without there's no voiceover there's nothing where he sort of lays out very much of you know what he's thinking or feeling but you I you get it from the way that the movie's put together and I think part of the reason that works so well is because this is another movie that Lem Dobbs wrote, 
So this is not the first time that we've seen him in Soderbergh's career. And so they, I think they probably collaborated in a way that Soderbergh is able to visualize what the writing is like and that they're able to write in a way that he can then put on screen and tell this story and tell these inner emotions and do it in a way that's interesting, like visually and narratively. Now, in terms of holding a close-up, did you guys know that, I don't know if it would have worked, maybe I'm just too biased to what he's done lately, but when the script was originally written, they were picturing Michael Caine in this role? Ah. I would have thought, I could have seen maybe Malcolm McDowell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. But, but... Uh, Michael Caine, didn't he eventually do Harry Brown? So he got around to doing a role similar to this. For me, what worked so well was that it was Terrence Stamp because I most associate him with the ultimate badass, which is General Zod, right? <laughs> like, I grew up kind of fearing this guy on screen, and I don't know a whole lot of his work. Um, I actually did go back a while and get that movie that they show clips of, of him as a young guy, Poor Cow, it's called. But he's not really in that movie. So that's kind of like all he's in. It's more about the girl. She's a single mother in like the 60s or 70s in London, uh, like living in squalor and stuff. But, um, but anyway, back to Zod, like, I mean, I just feel like he brings... Like, you put him on screen, I don't care if he's, you know, 50 or 80, like, he's a badass, like, he's scary, he's a scary dude, and until he kind of opens himself up a little to, like, Luis Guzman and the acting teacher and these people, like, then you realize, okay, like, there's a soft side, like, there's a more, like, benevolent side to this guy, which might even make him more dangerous, because you know that he cares about things and that, you know, he cares about losing things, especially stuff like his daughter. Uh, and he's got sort of a sordid past with her too. So he really needs to make that right. But uh, I just feel like the casting was spot on here. And there's, there's no more sympathetic moment than at the very end that the entire time, the entire reason he went to Los Angeles was to get vengeance for his daughter. And he's on the beach with Peter Fonda and he's able to kill the guy who, for all intents and purposes, maybe not murdered his daughter, but you know, led to her death and he lets him live. Like that's, there's no bigger show of sympathy or, you know, soft side or inside, like understanding how this guy thinks than by realizing that, you know, they sort of have a shared experience of his daughter, you know, threatening to call someone on the phone, threatening to call the cops and then not doing it. And so that, like the scenes that you mentioned, Mike, about, you know, opening up to Luis Guzman and everybody building up to that end shows you where this comes from, right? Right. And also the way I read that ending is that he's realizing his own culpability in his daughter's death, that she has played out the same role with Terry Valentine, except of course, you know, she was sleeping with him too, but that she played the same role of like getting herself involved with this guy who was up to no good and then calling the authorities because she wanted him to be better and that leading to her to her doom, that he sort of set her up for all this. And I think that if it's not sympathy for Terry, it's an understanding that he's not much better than Terry vis-a-vis -vis his daughter and how she, like what he's, he's done to her and that, that he comes to his peace with his own sort of, like his redemption comes through recognizing that he's at fault here too. After leaving a trail of bodies yes, yes, yes. behind him, yes. too. Yeah, he kills a lot of <laughs> Which yeah, is... Like, yeah, true. Like, he still gets to satiate that bloodlust. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I love that he buys the gun from the from the kids, that Luis Guzman sets him up with these, like, middle schoolers or high schoolers to buy his his uh, his weaponry. I think that's... It just a, And that's a scene where they don't talk, you know? Like, it's a silent scene, and it's not... They don't make a big deal out of it, but it is a, a pretty, you know, clear comment on, you know, gun culture in, in 1999. 
Guzman is great. It was great to see him here in like a really big sort of expanded role because you get back from out of sight. Yeah, and you just generally don't really get dudes that are like him in sort of like supporting leading roles, I feel. It just seems like more of a character actor type, but he pops on screen and I really like him. And, you know, we haven't really talked about the use of language in this movie, which I feel is like another one of Soderbergh's big sort of themes, you know, like going back like Schizopolis and, and things. And saying what we're not saying in sex lies and like coded talk or whatever but in this you know he's talking that um cockney slang the whole movie and and sometimes it's just great to hear him and louise guzman having a conversation (laughs) between the two of them because you can't really get what they're saying but you 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 under i think another character says it in the movie where it's like did you understand what he said is like no but i know what he means you know there's something to that effect and i really picked up on that a lot in this movie but that Cockney stuff was pretty cool. Yeah, given where the movie ends, the, you know, the idea of what had been left unsaid between him and his daughter, you know, thematically, there's there's a lot there too. You're totally right. Not only in the in the their sort of mistranslation back and forth to one another, but the whole idea that he's um, that he didn't say things he should have, and maybe his daughter said things that she shouldn't have, and you know, it's all wrapped up in that that whole sort of fascina- fascination he has with with language and with, with and the limits of language, right? I do want to go back a little bit and sort of re-mention a point that Mike just sort of not glossed over, but mentioned and sort of moved on from. But another thing that is really interesting, I think, about this movie is the clips from Poor Cow that. I was like, how did they get him looking so young? <laughs> and then I realized it was just from a different movie. Um, and in terms of the behind-the-scenes thing, apparently Soderbergh wanted to wanted Warner Brothers to license, give him the, the rights to the entire film. And they were like, no, nah, you can't do that. You need to pick your scenes. And he's just like, well, I'm just never going to make a movie for you guys again. And they <laughs> eventually gave in. But, like, they, they had finished shooting before they figured out, like, before they got the license to that film. So he said, like, it, it was terrifying <laughs> that... Yeah that they he didn't know if they were going to have anything or if they weren't going to have the right scenes or, you know, whatever. And then eventually Warner was like, all right, you can have everything. And they only use it probably maybe, what, like 30 seconds or maybe a minute of footage at most. But, like, it works so perfectly. And, yeah, and, and he's not really in a whole lot of that movie. Like, th- those are the scenes I feel like he's he's in of that film. It's still a good movie, though. Like, it's, a, it's about a single mother whose boyfriend was a crook and, if memory serves... Uh, Terrence Stamp is part of the gang and they end up together once the guy goes to prison but then he ends up going to prison and she's raising this kid alone pretty much like in the streets but I to my recollection the footage of their daughter is new footage that isn't the kid from the original movie Um, so I guess if all else had failed if they didn't get the footage they needed they could have reenacted the footage of the mother at least and sort of shot the young Terrence Stamp from behind or, (laughs) or tried to have recast it or do some kind of you know, digital wizardry. Um, but that is kind of, that is that is uh, some good thinking there. Like, you know, let's go back into some archives and see if we could find old footage of our actor that will play into this film. You know, nowadays you see it a lot, like even in the new Pirates movie, they have like retouched Johnny Depp with digital makeup to make him look like a 19-year-old sailing the ship or something. You know, they do it with, um, they do it like crazy in the Marvel movies too. So it's kind of funny, like he's a little like ahead of his time in that regard. Yeah, it's also a callback at, as much of this movie is to to the you know an earlier era. You know, we've got stars here who all made their big breaks in the '60s. He's drawing heavily on a movie called Point Blank in terms of the editing style, a Lee Marvin movie, right? That has a a similar kind of 
back and forth, uh, nonlinear, but aggressive editing style and violent editing style. And, and of course the soundtrack, we haven't mentioned the soundtrack. This is one of my favorite uh, in terms of like, you know, the, not the, not just the score, but the, the songs he's using, the pop songs he's using, you know, he's really sort of bathing this movie in, in sixties nostalgia. And I think it's sort of, it's just sort of lends a whole new flavor to this movie. Is this the first time to date, or maybe just the m- most prominent example of him licensing pop songs? It has to be. Yeah, it has to be. Because I can't remember too many others, because we keep talking about the scores, and Cliff Martinez is back here for probably the fourth or fifth movie, and there was another guy I think who maybe did two of his movies already, but I can't think of any other movies that really, like, I mean, this movie, the first thing you either, like, see or hear, like, the first thing you experience in this movie is the Who's yeah. the Seeker, which is so thematically, you know, on the nose, but it also is perfect. That's, like, and I think he's talked about, like, how that's, like, the song that, you know, it, like, Terrence Stamp's brother or somebody was, like, their manager? I don't know. Something, some weird behind-the-scenes relationship there, too, but, like, it works works for the character it works perfectly for the movie it gives you the energy of the movie but i don't think no. he's done any kind of like licensing songs we know up to this point and it's kind of shocking that he hasn't because it works so perfectly here well he's not going to put anything in kafka right i mean there there he's been limited in the in the sorts of movies he could use and i think that this this sort of, you know, as you say, is a kind of a culmination in a lot of ways, a peak Soderbergh, I think you, you said, which is really true. Like he's playing with with all of these things he's been, he's been, or he's, let me rephrase that. It's not that he's playing with them, he's played with them before, but he's really, he really feels freed from having to sort of do anything, do things one way. And he's feeling like he's, he has command, not just of the sort of visual language of cinema, but being able to sort of throw caution to the wind and, and sort of go you know, follow his his instincts, which are turning out to be quite good. And I think that the the pop songs are just a just one example of that. Yeah, it feels like an evolution. You know, like maybe he's just ready to introduce other people's music into his works. You know, I could understand being a little like, well, like let's it's a movie, let's create everything from the ground up, including like new music. You know, a score. You know, movies have scores and stuff. So like maybe just kind of stick to that for a couple films, and it's time to just move on or break out of that and expand yourself a little bit. And he's just got really good instincts when it comes to music. I mean, already, I don't think I've ever had. You know, even if I wasn't really down with the film i don't recall ever not liking any of the music that's accompanied a lot of his stuff so it's just i feel like it's a the start of a streak of him picking pop songs that is going to continue it's just he's got a really good ear well i know like in a couple movies like i'm trying to think man i just don't know his filmography that well but i know in a couple movies when we get the oceans i know that there's the uh, the paul oakenfold remix of an elvis song which is great and that works so perfectly in that movie I think it's just like it's almost better when it's reserved. Like it's just a few yeah. times, a few songs, and it just it just it, it's spot on. He uses it when he needs it, like all these tools. You know, there's a there's a version of this movie that would be that would use these things in excess. And I know some people who feel like the editing style is over the top that he is doing too much with it. But to my mind, he's not. I, partly, I think because as we've said, the the story of the movie is so clear, and we're when we're so much in his head. But you're totally right. If you know if he's gonna if he's gonna lard up traffic with a bunch of you know pop songs but it's better to save it for you know magic mike i mean you're going to need some <laughs> you're going to need some pop songs when you get to that right and, and and i don't remember much about haywire but there's possibility in movies like that also written by lem dobbs that that you're going to have you're going to have options there too it just he really seems to be uh, you know the thing he said earlier in the interview before one of the previous movies that if he 
he likes to you know make one big aesthetic decision at the beginning that sort of sets the course for the rest of the movie and it and it feels like it just means that that then when he's making choices during the making of the movie he's making he's making choices about that movie at that moment he's not necessarily thinking about before or or after right like he's what's right for this movie oh these the 60s rock and roll is right for this movie and he's just so right yeah, and it elevates the sort of the mystique of Peter Fonda, too. You know, it's like, oh, in case you don't remember, like, this guy's got history, and, and this will sort of, like, remind you and harken back. Like you said, like, there's there's a reason for it. It's, I mean, sometimes, especially nowadays, you know, they use music as a crutch a lot, especially pop songs. I mean, like, not everyone can, can be Tarantino when it comes to, you know, dropping a needle, um, unfortunately. So, like, it's, it's just nice to know that he's got that reserve and that he keeps it for a reason. And it's like a weapon, you know, you, you bring it out at the appropriate time to create, like, a maximum amount of effect and i think it does that uh, really well yeah what, what's um, kind of cool is that it's period music but not to the period of the movie right like it's he's not using it to, to cue you to when the movie's taking place he's using it to cue to when the movie's like the vibe of the movie is right and then and then there's it's a similar thing to the way it's uh, that um scorsese uses music in some of his gangster movies you know music that maybe wasn't even around at the time you know but, but just because it has to do with the feeling or the mood or the there's something about the expression of the music emotionally or or sort of psychologically that that fits that moment so well and that, that that's what it feels like he's doing here if we could change courses for a little bit, because I, I was looking through my notes and I saw something else that I wanted to talk about. When he goes to that warehouse and he ostensibly kills everybody in the in the place except for the one guy, it's interesting to me that the violence is off screen. That it's just implied. We don't know, you know, I guess in theory he could have just shot everybody in the leg and, you know, <laughs> let that one guy go. I mean, probably not, but who knows. But I wonder, like, it's obviously intentional, and I don't know if that's budgeting or if that's to not show violence or to sort of keep it so that you can still root for the guy. You know what I mean? Like, as opposed to a modern day, you know, action movie like... I saw this movie, I think, for the first time the same summer, around the same time I saw Taken, and it's like, it's similar stories, but so, so very different, because there you're, like, rooting for Liam Neeson to kill as many guys as possible to get his daughter back, right? And here, I wonder if not showing him kill guys, like, you know that he's there, but you can sort of rationalize, like, oh, well, no, he's still a good guy, because I haven't seen him kill anybody. Yeah, I think that that's partially it. The other thing is you do see him get his ass kicked, right? So, yeah, they're definitely tipping the scales of sympathy uh, in his balance uh, toward his side because he goes in there and he's like, uh, you you know Jenny. And he's like, who the fuck is Jenny? Who the hell are you? Like, someone get this old guy out of here and they end up kicking his ass and everything. And, yeah, he just whips out a gun and the camera stays outside while he walks in and you hear, and you hear the shots. Now, to me... I didn't need to see it. This is something like I noticed Soderbergh did with like Out of Sight. I think we mentioned this with um, when they're in the car. Glenn is in the car and they're getting ready to go do some job and they're talking about doing this job and they're pulling out like hacksaws right. and hatchets and guns and all these things. And it's like, you know, it's the buildup. It's the buildup to the violence and then you don't show the violence and you have to play it out in your head. And so to me, I, I saw him, you know, go in there guns blazing, like shooting everybody but the guy who who put his hands on him and let that guy go. And then when he comes out screaming, you know, telling him I'm fucking coming, I feel like I experienced the violence enough without even seeing it. Yeah, he also is the, the sort of lead guy in the warehouse, like in the middle of them beating him up, whispers to him what he would have liked to have done to Jenny. 
would have liked to have done as Terrence Stamp's daughter. We don't hear what he says uh, in the same in the same way of the, we don't see the violence, but you can easily guess that it's some kind of terrible, horrific thing that he violation that he wanted to commit to the guy's daughter. So we yeah we totally are comfortable as as is the case with this sort of revenge movie. Like we I don't we don't feel any qualms about these guys getting killed in this movie. The movie does not expect us to anyway. Um, and and so yeah, part of it might be keeping him a good guy in our minds. The movie's not going to be afraid to show violence, right? The movie's not going to shy away from times when people are, you know, shot in this movie or imagining that people are being shot, fantasizing about it. But there's something, what this moment mostly is about and what I think Soderbergh is trying to convey with it is the threat, the the threat to Terry. That when he lets the one guy go and yells, you know, tell him I'm fucking coming, that's the most important moment. The close-up we get is, is just about as close as we ever get to Terrence Stamp in the movie. Like, it's really, really close to his face. And the whole, all the violence inside, even though we're outside, it's all one take. He's you know, gets up from being beaten up, pulls out the gun, walks back inside, bang, 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 and then comes out and says his line. And, and also, if, if, if we're thinking about this movie as taking place through his memory of what's gone on, for him, the killing of these guys is clearly no big deal, <laughs> right? Like, the part he's going to remember is the venom he feels as he shouts after you know, the threat to Terry, and that the, that the violence he commits is not necessarily important to him, right? So that's the kind of guy he is. I just want to know why anybody would talk to him in a way when he goes into a warehouse with a gun and is like beating up on people. Why would you treat him that way? Like, like that's only going to end poorly. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I like that though, because those are tropes of these types of revenge films, right? Like you're going to get these idiot thugs who don't know that this guy's dangerous at all. Right. And so they're going to just like play him off like a joke and think that they've taken care of him and dust off their jackets, but they really uh, should not let their guard down you know <laughs> there's also a trope in these types of films where the good guy you know or the anti-hero comes in and blows everybody away so <laughs> they should watch more of these types of movies before acting that way towards people they don't know yeah this and this scene also brings out another of my confessions that i occasionally have on these podcasts which i and which i didn't even realize oh, man they are no, coming this, fast and furious lately this is, not, this is not a big one um, but there's a one of the thugs who, I th- who who seems to be a non-actor. I don't think those guys are are trained actors, which worked well in the scene, I think. But one of these thugs calls Terrence Stamp "fucko," which feels like a like an ad lib. And I've used that in scripts like half a dozen times in the last ten years, having no like thinking I had come up with it, or or at least that I that I didn't know where it came from. And I'm I'm now I know for sure it came from this movie and I can never use it again because I know that what I'm doing when I say it is I'm referencing this movie. For whatever reason that term stuck in my head and came out of my fingers uh, you know on, onto a, a lot of pages. I love it. Can we talk about how the one how Peter Fonda's girlfriend or whatever is basically Denise Richards? Yes. But not Denise <laughs> yes, Richards. Yes. And I was like because I knew she was too young, but I was like, it can't, like, I Googled her, and then, like, I Googled her again. I'm like, no, this can't be. And she takes, I think this is the most baths per movie I've ever <laughs> oh, seen. Oh, totally. <laughs> But there's no nudity. Like, it's all, like, restrained, right? It must be symbolic. Like, she just feels dirty being around that guy. Amelia Heinley. H-E-I-N-L-E. When you Google her, like, the first autocomplete is Amanda Heinley, Denise Richards. It's, like, it's everybody, like, because it's the same, she's the same person. And I thought, like, because she's beautiful, and I don't think she's a terrible actress, but I also have realized that I'm kinder to beautiful actresses for being bad actresses just because they're beautiful, which I guess is why they get in things. But she's only been in, like, five or six movies. I expect to see her in a lot more, but she hasn't been. I felt like she was just more there to be like 
like a point that this guy keeps trading in for younger women and you know there's even a line that said like oh i remember uh, i suggested to your parents what to name you i was like jesus yeah that's his first line his first yeah i was like that is like super creepy territory right there oh i just realized why she's not in more things because she's been in 1400 episodes of the young and the restless Ah. okay so she's a soap so she's doing all right with herself Ah. yeah and i mean that also goes to where i was gonna go is that i don't feel like everybody in this movie is there because they're great actors like you take the warehouse dudes like the fucko guy like you know they give the least convincing high five after that line that i've ever seen in my life but you just know because they're not actors that that's how it's gonna play and i think that's part of the point is like this is supposed to feel more populated like the real world and in the real world when people try to sound cool or keep their cool uh they don't play it off very well you know even if they think they do not everybody's a great actor yeah it's ragged it's it's shaggy it's it's not this is not a polished movie which doesn't mean that it's not thought out or well considered i mean clearly it is but but there's a real like there's a run and gun quality to this and like and as you say yeah you want to get this to feel a little bit more like life in places and um uh, i think that it, it sort of the way he's mixing actors and non-actors I, I sort of love i sort of love that anyway i'm i'm a fan of that aesthetic and i think it works i think it works really well here oh i was gonna say like another couple characters that kind of fit in like i think they're more actors than not actors but there's a life to them and a specific type of casting that could be sort of in that same thing we're talking about is the hired killer and his sort of goon buddy Nikki cat that guy looked like someone also he looked like the guy from um justified timothy oliphant yeah, I thought that that one guy with the with the braids looked like Timothy Oliphant uh, a couple of times. I looked at him, but I guess it's not a clear resemblance. If you <laughs> mean the best cop in any Cage movie from Gone in sixty seconds, him and um, Delroy. So we have them, and like they have a really interesting, to say the least, uh, introduction at the billiards table, and then they just you know get in that big bar fight there. And two other notes that I wrote down about them is that I thought it was really funny that this was six years before the TV show Extras would start, and they basically predict Extras. Yep. Did you guys catch that? They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, like a TV show all about like the background right. actors. Like, oh, okay. Like that's something like that's just, I guess that was probably like an idea that a lot of people had and it just became real. But it was funny to see, like, I looked up when that show started to see if it predicted it and it did. And then also the idea of them on the like the movie set, I guess, where they're like just like talking shit about everything that's going on is just so funny to me. I, th- I thought that was kind of like, they're very colorful characters. Like they feel more like characters than the rest of the real world around them in a way. Yeah, and I feel like they're set up to be a real imposing threat, too, in a very short amount of time, and then they just kind of aren't. They aren't, yep, right? Yeah, like, yeah. They, they just, like, it, real worlds, the real life steps in, and these, like, DEA agents who have been tracking them step in before they could shoot our hero. Which is or, so weird. It's such a weird detour, but, like, it works. Yeah, it works. I mean, they're like red herrings or something, and I really love the way the film sort of dealt with that and said, like, no, like, once again, like, this isn't, we're going for a different type of death wish here. <laughs> like in any other one, there'd be a big shootout and all these squibs and the cops would get shot. And like someone would walk out of their apartment to see what was going on and they would get shot. <laughs> um, like it would just be craziness, you know? And then instead in this, it's like, nope, one, two, three, like not even a shot fired or maybe one. But uh, it's just like, yeah, it's just immediately swept under the rug. Yeah. And Terrence Stamp's conversation with the head DEA agent is 
for my money, one of the most fun scenes in the whole movie where he comes in and like lays it all out for the guy and, and, and comes, you can see the key that, that he could put on another character, you know, that he's, he's not, he says more in that scene than he probably says in the rest of the movie. It's just, I, I, there's so much life in that. I think that's a great scene. And that's Bill Duke as the yes. head DEA. Yeah. Right? yeah. And he was, what did we just watch with him in it? Was that? Oh, Henry's, Henry's crime, crime for Keanu. Yeah. yeah. But I saw, I saw him at the, I went to the Predator double feature at the draft oh, house. Yeah. He's in Predator yeah. 1. So that was awesome. But he also has the line of the movie, or yeah. one of the lines. I mean, there's so many good lines in this movie, but he's like, there's one thing I don't understand, that one thing is every motherfucking thing you're saying. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. the whole movie, like, they keep setting up, like, he's using this, like, Cockney slang, and nobody knows what he's talking about. Like, everybody makes it very obvious that, like, we don't know what you're talking about. It doesn't matter. Like, it's because it's he is, like, an outsider. And again, you know, going back to the early Soderbergh movies and most of what he's done, except for maybe not out of sight, but they're all, like, you know, a protagonist that, or actually even out of sight, protagonist that sort of doesn't feel at home in the world around them or, like, feels at odds with society. And here, once again, like, he's a very literal outsider and people just don't know how to deal with him. Yeah, and not only it's crazy. Like he's a multi-tiered outsider. Like not only is he not he's okay. So he's in America. He's originally you know from London. He's in America, so that's one. He just got out of prison, right? right. So like he's being reacclimated into society. So like that's two, and he's a career criminal. So that's kind of three, right? So like that with like his the Cockney slang and the way he talks and his way of moving through the criminal underworld now and everything is. That's just like his education, like what he knows. So I feel like he's got several strikes against him moving through this world. And I especially love that scene when he is sort of um, when he's in front of the cops and and he's just like verbal diarrhea because like he hasn't. I feel like he you know he's in front of an authority figure and he's going to revert back to like this twenty-something-year-old crook and he just can't help but try and impress this guy or talk his way out of something or anything. So. I just think he's a really interesting character and how he's able to function Mm -hmm. in this world, having been removed from it so much and so far for so long. This will be an interesting yardstick to judge a lot of or to examine a lot of his other movies going forward, because I think that looking at the at the list of movies we've watched so far, they all seem to have a protagonist who's dislocated in some way, except for maybe the underneath, Yep. which you can make an argument about, but he's coming home, and I, I don't know, the movie I like the least... It's still sort of, sort of, yeah. but the movie yeah. I like the least seems to have the least to say about it. And all the other movies, you know, even Grey's Anatomy, very much a guy who's not, not comfortable in his skin or the world around him, that, that I think that that sense of dislocation might be something that, that p- crops up uh, in his better movies. We'll have to sort of pay attention to that. If I can give us an assignment. Sure. No, yeah, look, that's something that, like, in these interviews that I have been reading with him, he keeps talking about. Like, that's definitely a theme. That, like, that's what attracts him to scripts is that protagonist sort of not comfortable in people around him. So I don't think that, like, I don't think you're going to become disinterested in that as a filmmaker as you go on. Like, I think, you know, if anything, you'll want to look for other ways to tell that kind of story, right? But, you know, I think that that's something that's always going to be... And again, like, you know, the, the, the movie I'm most familiar with of his, Ocean's Eleven, you sort of like, well, not really, but also still kind of, because he's like a criminal trying to fit yeah. in with the world and just sort of yeah, can't. Yeah, that's why. Like, he's trying to... Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. 
we also have a little bit of a preview down the line where Luis Guzman is wearing a Che Guevara yes. shirt. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's cool. Career foreshadowing for Soderbergh. Like, I'm sure that for somebody to make a four-hour movie about Che, he was probably already interested in him at this time. So it sort of, you know, next maybe a little nod or whatever there, but it was just cool to see that. Did you catch the Access Hollywood footage of George Clooney. That's exactly what I was just going to say, yep, (laughs) that he's also got Clooney on TV. So it's like, not necessarily, like it's not the same universe, but it's, you know, it's the Soderverse. Well, I love how he just drops these Easter eggs in there, right? Clearly, I feel like that was sort of a dig at Clooney, like uh, Clooney who's, you know, known for being a practical joker on set and kind of getting under people's skin. I almost wonder if that was a practical joke that Soderbergh did for him was to put that clip into one of his movies for everyone to see. There's also one thing that I noticed, or I, I read in a previous trivia section that I didn't mention, but Soderbergh's company, or like production company or something, or whatever, is perennial, and the word perennial has been in three movies to date, it was in the underneath, and out of sight, and in this movie, the courier company that he visits is Perennial Couriers, and it also, once again, pop up in traffic. So it's another little sort of Easter egg, not necessarily character-related, but in four movies of his first 12-ish, by the time we get the traffic, it's going to have, you know, a place or a person or a thing or whatever called perennial, which is cool. Cool might be the wrong word. (laughs) Of note. (laughs) Of note. One of my newer favorite directors, Adam Rifkin, who I discovered through Cage Club, uh, he does sort of a similar thing where he has like the same signage in every one of his movies. Uh, It's not the name of his, I don't think it's the name of his production company, but it's like the face of his grandmother on the side. And (laughs) it's just like the same company in every movie is represented. At one point, Jenny, Terrence Stamp's daughter, says daddy the friendly ghost and i was like this movie actually makes a lot of sense if you look at it as a ghost oh, interesting i could see that i i kind of want to like it's, it's sort of a weird i don't even know if it's an exercise but like a weird thing to do to like look at movies through a trope or through a type of movie like a ghost story or like a monster movie or a slasher film or whatever and sort of see if it hits those beats. Like, for instance, there was a movie that came out last year, but sort of became widely available this year, called The Love Witch, which is just this very hyper-pastel, you know, beautiful to look at, really slow-moving, weird movie, where this woman falls in love with guys, or has them fall in love with her, and then they all wind up dead. And so it's this weird movie, and it's hard to really understand what to make of it, but then if you look at it like it's a monster movie or like a slasher film or something, it kind of makes more sense. And you sort of have things to compare it against here. I mean, everybody is kind of haunted by Jenny. Like she's not really in the movie. She's only in a couple flashbacks, a couple things in his head, but she's in every scene and she's driving the whole thing. And she's like literally haunting. Well, that's funny. I was, when you said that, I was imagining the movie thinking about Terrence Stamp as a ghost. Like maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe he's still in prison or has died there. And as we are just seeing the ghost, the ghost doesn't know he's, he's, or right, that, he's, yeah. he's a ghost. So mm-hmm. he's just haunting and killing yeah. these people or getting them to kill each other or, or, or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But I like that. I like that. That's either way. That's an interesting way to sort of take a read on this movie. Yeah, I definitely, while you are saying that, I got the sense that Terrence Stamp could totally be like a Mike Myers or a Jason-type character. I mean, he's just like this silver-haired guy in a black suit with a knife or a gun, and he just, you know, he's like unstoppable. Well, if you, if you think about the movie from Peter Fonda's point of view, it, it could feel like a ghost story or like a slasher where he's the, the, the impending victim. I mean, that's that, if he's, the, this movie from his point of view would definitely fit that model. 
there's that great moment where his handler or the guy looking after him played by Barry Newman is, is like he said tell him I'm coming and he's like who's coming and he's like nobody knows and he's like what the hell does that mean he's like he's like I don't know man but he's like I'm pretty sure we should be freaking scared right now <laughs> uh, yeah but it's cool because he's like I, I love how Fonda just has no clue as to like why his world is crashing down around him like he's so self-absorbed like I mean probably in the back of his mind he knows it's about Jenny but he won't admit to himself until the very end that's what it's all about uh, so yeah he's definitely haunted I don't think I have anything else any other notes about this movie Tobin you have anything else you uh, there want to are mention? two MVPs that I want to call out in this movie one is uh, Leslie Ann Warren who plays a sort of mentor friend to Jenny that Terrence Stamp goes to and, and learn and stays with some at some point I think right is he's, do you think he's staying there anyway she is an actress that I have loved since I was a very, very young child. She made a, uh, and this is by no means her most famous movie, but she made a movie in 1982 called Victor Victoria that I used to watch way before I was old enough to know, like to, that I should have been watching. It's a, it's a Blake Edwards comedy with Julie Andrews and Robert Preston. And um, I learned all kinds of things at a very young age from that movie that I, that I, I should not have. <laughs> uh, but my grandmother loved it. We used to watch it in the summers over and over and over again. And, and in that movie, Leslie Ann Warren plays a, a character who's uh, James Garner's um, like mob boss girlfriend. And she's hysterical and has this funny voice. And so I've just, I, so when I saw her crop up in this movie, cause she, I, I just haven't seen her a lot, uh, even though she worked, she works on TV a lot now, I guess. Anyway, she's, Wonderful, and I think she's great in this movie. And if you know and movies from the seventies and eighties, she's you know she has she had a following. You know, like she's if you know those movies in that era and her at all, she sort of she resonates in the way that um, that that Fonda and Terrence Stamp do too. And the other person that we should mention that we haven't yet is Sarah Flack, who was the editor for the movie, who's done oh, yeah. a lot of Sofia Coppola, in fact, all of Sofia Coppola's movies. And worked with other other people as well. And I think that she is, you know, uh, and had worked, she had uncredited work on um, uh, Schizopolis, apparently, and is going to work again with uh, Soderbergh on Full Frontal before he decides to do all his own editing. But I think that she, even if she's just carrying out his his vision, she, she's done enough other work that's quite interesting from an editing point of view. I always know I'm going to be in good hands in terms of the cutting when I see her name on a movie. And she will be back for Full Frontal, too. Well, I just, my only other thing was to say, do you guys like this movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really like it. I mean, like I said earlier, I'm a, I'm a fan of the genre, and for this to be so outside the box of that, um, you know, it's not just Death Wish. There's lots of movies like this, but, like, none quite like this is yeah. what, what I'm trying to get at. So I love that it's able to take something so familiar and, and so basic and twist it in such a fresh and new way. Not everybody likes this. People I, who I really respect and, who, and whose taste I admire, there's people who don't, who don't care for this. They either think it's too much or that it's pretentious or that it's, or that it's too thin that there's nothing there and I've always gotten a lot out of this movie of the things we've seen so far this is my second favorite after Out of Sight really? wow I have it number four after Schizopolis and Sex Lies Huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I totally. I like. I say. I'm. I'm not partial on this. I've seen this probably too many times, and I, I. I admire the hell out of this movie. Of his. Of his movies, the two I wish I had made were The Limey and Out of Sight. So far. So I have to put it up there. Mike, any last thoughts about The Limey? Just that I do like this movie a lot. I recommend this movie. Just a final note, sort of about the the way that it evokes the sort of 70s and 60s nostalgia through the actors and the mood and the feel. The guy I mentioned, Barry Newman. 
plays Peter Fonda's um, like advisor or handler or money man doing all like his his sort of the bad guy that takes care of all the bad business i don't know if you guys are familiar with him but i sure as hell am because he sort of did for cars what peter fonda did for motorcycles with a film called vanishing point have yes, you guys yes, familiar yeah. with that so that's him and also this other one fear is the key which is another great car movie uh, and so it was really cool to see him actually get behind the wheel of a car in this and race down the street after them at one point and get into an accident and everything so that was nice i feel like that was almost an homage or something like that a, a really cool thing to see him him do in this movie uh so yeah and there's all kinds of cool things going on in this and i definitely recommend it cool well for all things soderbergh and all of his movies and you know the ones that we like better than this and the ones that we like less than this uh and this is probably closer to the top i think for all of us than the bottom so this is a good one to listen to and to watch you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com cageclub or at cageclubpod on twitter see all the episodes that we've done all the other shows in the network Lots of fun, free things for you to listen to. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.